Hear the word of Jesus written to four of the seven churches in Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, though you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and I know and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, that you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of the person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, 
I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Hope you're well this morning. We are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. I hope you've seen one clear point in our short time so far in this book. The point is this, this book is about a persecuted people getting hope by being shown Jesus. That's what this book is about. It's not about crazy conspiracy theories. It's not about noticing what nation is going to be sovereign or where Nicholas Carpathia is going to come from. This book is for persecuted Christians and their hope in this world. And in the next is a living Jesus. Last week, during our missions weekend, Marty preached on Revelation 5. And so we're actually going back to the 2 and 3 today to finish up on the seven letters written to the churches. So if you remember two weeks ago, I preached on the two positive letters written. The two letters said only good things to the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia. And really, I wanted to focus on the positive letters first because I wanted to kind of rave about the, the bride of Christ first. Do you remember, guys, that I finished that sermon by us together crafting a letter? Um, remember, this is not a letter actually written. This is not a vision given from Jesus to us, but this is a letter that we crafted together. And here's what it says. Letter to the angel of the church of Waypoint. These are the words of Jesus, our king. I am love. I am your refuge. I am the faithful one who is compassionate over all of you. I know your heart. I know your heart to serve others, to be humble. You are sincere and genuine people. You're gracious. You have a heart to hear and a heart to serve. Waypoint, make sure you don't forget your first love. Make sure you do not become complacent or lazy, but pursue righteousness. Build each other up. You are one in me. Build each other up. Know that I'll be with you. I'm faithful to complete the good work that I started amongst you. I will unite you. My spirit will create unity in you. For I am before all things, and I hold all things together. It is by my might you will advance. I love that letter. Now, I know it's not a vision, but I just love just kind of receiving that, um, that, that word that we wrote together. I think it hits us well. But after the positive, I want to share some of the negative letters now. Now, have you ever, guys, waited to hear from someone, um, most of you guys might not relate to this, but have you ever waited to hear news from someone through the snail mail, through the actual mail, you know, not email? Some of you guys might have no idea what this is like to wait to hear from someone through the mail, because you're probably thinking, well, if it was really important, they just email me or text me or fax me or whatever me, right? FaceTime me. But there was a time where one didn't have an email address or a cell phone or an AIM account. 
I remember such days. I remember once meeting a girl at camp when I was in middle school. We both kind of liked each other at the end of camp, but she lived hours away from me. And when this camp was over, our only recourse of contact was snail mail. I didn't have email address at the time. There was no cell phones. I think the only cell phone that might have existed was like the Zach Morris kind that nobody actually had enough money to own. <laughs> and I didn't have an email at the time yet. I didn't have, I didn't have the only person I knew my aunt or my cousin had instant message or had uh, an AOL account. It just started, the internet just started happening. So I didn't have an email address, I had nothing. So as a young lad and a young woman from middle school that met each other at camp, we thought we'll write each other letters. Right? So we wrote a letter to each other, and as a young man, I was pretty pumped about it. Right? The only thing I've ever gotten in the mail is probably like a birthday card from my grandmother or something like that. So I was like, she's going to write me a letter. So she actually wrote me a letter. And I was like, what? So excited. And so we quickly wrote letters back and forth to each other. I couldn't wait for the next one. We wrote back and forth. Maybe, you know, and writing back and forth, guys, it's not like, like it's, like it's not a one-day thing. It takes a few days to write your letter. You have to read the letter, then you have to write your letter, then you have to go there, it takes a while to get there, then she has to read it, think about it, write it. So this is over a course of time now. So this decent amount of time has passed until I finally got a letter telling me that she has a boyfriend and wasn't writing me anymore. <laughs> it was a sad day. And it's a bummer to get sad news when you're eagerly hoping to hear good news, especially from someone you care about, right? Haven't heard from somebody in a while, you're waiting for this snail mail, and you're like, yes! And you get this letter, you rip it open, and then it's like, yeah, I got a boyfriend. What? Oh. Now imagine how the churches that John wrote his letters felt. I'm not talking about Smyrna and Philadelphia, because those were good ones. But here's John, exiled to Patmos, the apostle who has always greeted his people with the phrase, love one another. The guy known as the apostle of love. This was their pastor, their friend. And he's sent away, and now after eagerly waiting to hear from him, they're like, yes, John sent us a letter. But then you're like the church in Laodicea or, or Sardis, and you're like, oh, um, kind of harsh, John. I mean, like, that's like how I felt when I read that letter from that girl. They're like, ow, I was really looking forward to this letter, but that's a bummer. And I want you to know something. It wasn't meant to be a bummer. John wanted to give a word of love, and that's, I know it's a harsh word that he gave, but it was a word of love. I want to tell you something, people, people this is kind of a side note, but I want to start off by saying this, that a harsh word, yes, but it's also a word of love in these letters. And a harsh word and a word of love is not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, sometimes a word of love needs to be harsh. Do you hear that? Revelation 3.19 was just read. It says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. A couple of weeks ago in our community group, we asked the question, what was the worst thing you did as a, as a child? So in our community group that we met together, and that was kind of one of the icebreaker type questions we asked each other, what was the worst thing you did as a child? And we had mainly cutesy, tame little, oh, look how cute you were as a child type answers from everybody. I was honestly tempted to share a long and elaborate story about how I became a drug kingpin or something, but I refrained. I did not do that. And I shared my answer. You know, it was one of those you know, answers that I, was, I shouldn't have done, but I, I did, it was a bad story. But the part that always sticks out for me is how my mom disciplined me after the story. When I was young, my mom would always cry when she had to spank me. That was like the thing, so that was always used to, that was always wrecked me so much more. You know, she'd be, she spanked me, she'd start crying, I'm like, wow, don't cry. Well, this major time that I got spanked, and she would cry, and I just asked her, this was like, this was a major, like, major beating, and I was like, ooh, this is something bad I did. And she was spanking me, and she was, she was crying, and I was crying, and I said, Mom, then if you're crying, I'm crying, just don't do it. 
You don't have to do it. It's not that complicated, mom. Just stop spanking me. I don't need it. And my mother said she loved me way too much to not discipline me. As a father of two boys, I get it. It's much easier not to discipline. I love it when we go on vacation. You know, we go on vacation and I'm like, you want the iPad? You get the iPad. You want, go ahead and eat all the chips you want. I don't care, we're on vacation. I don't need to discipline, right? Because it's easier not to discipline. It's harder. It's harder to discipline. It's more work to discipline. It requires, hear this, sacrificial love. And if you parents, can you, can you guys nod your head if you understand what I'm saying? My people hear this well. Sometimes a harsh word is exactly what you need. And a rebuke can be a great, great thing. You want people in your life who love you so much that they're willing to see the thing they need to say or the thing that you need to hear them say. Do you hear me? My people, we need to live in such a community that we don't tiptoe around each other, scared to hurt each other's feelings. Instead, we commit to such radical love that we know even harsh rebuking comes from a heart of love. Can I tell you, if I'm walking towards the edge of a cliff, oblivious, lost in my own world and my thoughts, listening to my own music, please don't come to me with gentleness. Please come yelling, grabbing, and screaming. Tell me to stop, tackle me down to the ground if I need to. I'd rather you do that and then me walk off the cliff. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus loves his people so much that he's giving this word to them. Guys, not to break up with them, but to restore them. And I hope you understand that this is what these letters are to the churches are about, this restoration that comes from discipline. Do you get that? I think we live in a day and age in a culture that's so, we, we, we're so afraid of hurting, hurting each other's feelings or saying the wrong things or losing relationships or especially when churches have become such a consumer thing where you can just go to another church if the pastor hurts your feelings or somebody in the church says something that who cares, I'll just go to the next church. And so we get scared to see the harsh things that need to be said. Do you, you guys with me? Can I tell you something? The loving thing sometimes is the hard thing. It's the rebuking thing. It's the harsh thing. And we need to hear it. And what I pray that we do is what we do is we create an atmosphere, a culture, a family of trust that we know that our foundation is a loving unity brought by the Holy Spirit. And in such a place then, can we hear words of rebuking, hear words of critique or, or, or discipline and know that it comes from love. And I'm not saying, guys, we don't need to be gentle. We need to be gentle. We need to be kind. We need our words to be dripping with honey sometimes. But guys, there are also times when you're walking towards the cliff that you need me just to not care about any of that stuff and just tackle you to the ground and say, don't you do that. Your family's worth more. Your integrity's worth more. Your God is worth more. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? So that's what these letters are. These letters are this beautiful mix of not just, oh, harsh word, John, that hurts, or Jesus, why did you say that? This is a letter. No, he's saying, guys, I want restoration for you. I love you so much. Will you come be restored through this loving discipline that I'm giving you? The Lord disciplines those he loves. And it hurt, but he's giving the word to them so they can be restored. 
Now today, I don't have time to dive into each letter. I was kind of hoping to dive into a little bit of each letter, but I, want, I just don't think we have time for that. So I'm going to focus on the last letter, the letter to the church of Laodicea. But here's what I will do. I'm sure there's, as you heard the scripture being read, if you haven't read this chapter before, there's probably two main questions that you can ask. You're probably asking to yourself, what in the world are Nicolaitans? Yep. And then the second part is, what do they mean by the Jezebel and the suffering and all that stuff? Yes? So here's what I'm going to do for you. Because I'm not diving into those two churches, I'm going to write on the realm, I'm going to give you posts, and I'll have a separate post to you talking about those two things. Okay? So those of you guys have questions about those two things, I'm not ignoring those two things. I'm going to have an article written on the realm so that you can look it up. It'll be written by Tuesday on the realm. Is that okay? So I'm not, I'm, I don't want to skip over anything, but either that or I'll either put it on the realm where I'm like, hmm, this might need more discussion, then we'll do a podcast about it. Danny's like, no, Lawrence. <laughs> To the realm, to the realm. But uh, so that'll do either one of those things. And we will cover those two things uh, either on the realm or on the podcast. So just to be aware. But for our little bit of time that we have, I want to dive into this letter written to the church of Laodicea. And I shared before two weeks ago some information. Geography actually plays a role. History of the city plays a role in this letter, as it does in most of these letters. It is a city located 40 miles south of Philadelphia, 100 miles or so east of Ephesus. Remember, it's all along a circular trade route that is very popular cities in Asia Minor. It was established well before the rise of the Roman Empire. Historically, it was known as the city of Zeus. But about 250 BC, the city was named by the Syrian ruler Antiochus II in honor of his wife, Laodice. Laodicea? Something like that. When the Romans entered the area 100 years later, Laodicea became an important crossroad and the seat of local government. It was an important and thriving center of commerce and is widely known for its black wool and for its medical school, which produced, hear this, an effective eye salve, which was in wide demand throughout the Roman world. The city was very wealthy and was able to withstand earthquakes and rest- restoration. After the Jewish captivity in Babylon, uh, large numbers of Jews sought to return to their ancient homeland. Antiochus the Great enticed nearly 2,000 Jewish families to relocate to this area in Western Asia Minor, about 250 BC. So there was a large amount of Jewish population as well. Dr. Riddlebarger made this point in a commentary. Given the fact there is no mention of opposition from the Jews living in the area to the church in Laodicea, coupled with the fact that there is no mention of opposition from Gentiles in the form of persecution from the state, nor is there any mention of problems associated with false teachers being in their midst, we can but wonder if the church in Laodicea had stopped preaching the gospel altogether. The fact that this church actually thrived in an area dominated by Jews and paganism, the city was home to a huge temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar, is a good indication that this congregation had long since stopped being a threat or an offense to those outside the church. Now I thought that was an interesting take on this. Right? This commentator, this theologian, this professor, he's actually a professor at, uh, he was a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, actually made this point that he said there were so many Jewish families there, right? It was known as a pagan headquarters. It, it had all these elements that should, if the gospel was moving, if the church was preaching, they should have seen persecution after persecution after persecution. But they didn't. And so the logical conclusion that this commentator reached was, even, and also based on this letter, was that they were not preaching the gospel. They were not living and preaching the gospel. They were doing something more watered down. Given the reference to its material wealth and prosperity, it could also very be likely that this church had grown complacent, 
self-satisfied and kind of self-reliant. By worldly standards, this church was a huge success. It had money, it was well attended, um, but the letter from Jesus says something totally different. He says this church was poor and wretched. It lost interest in the gospel and in Christ. The church thought it had everything it needed, but it missed the most important thing. A little bit of background more about this city of Laodicea needs to be mentioned uh, before we turn to the text itself is that the city had no local water supply. The Lycus River, which ran through the city, was described by a commentary as turbid with white mud, nauseous and undrinkable. The neighboring city of Colossae to the east was watered by a cold mountain stream. Heropolis to the north sat on a natural hot spring, which was believed to have medicinal qualities. But Laodicea obtained its water through an aqueduct running from a hot spring located five miles to the south. The water was hot when it entered the aqueduct, but it was filled with calcium carbonate, and by the time the water traveled down the system and arrived in the city, it was lukewarm and barely drinkable. It is a matter of record that throughout its early history, its growth and prosperity was hindered by its lack of drinking water, which is something that the whole people of Laodicea would be familiar with. So with that in mind then, well, let's dive back into this letter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I love the introduction of Jesus in this letter, by the way. He says, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness of God's creation. No mincing words here. Jesus is saying, I rule everything. You think you're powerful, but I rule everything. And once again, Jesus reminds his particular congregation that he is the faithful witness who knows their true condition. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, once again, anyone living in Laodicea who is familiar with the lukewarm and tepid water which came through the city's aqueduct would have immediately grasped what Jesus was saying. He knows this, the true state of affairs of the church. The Laodiceans may think of themselves as wealthy and without need, but um, 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 wealth without needs, um, but in reality, this church was just like the water, the bitter, tepid water the Laodiceans were forced to drink on a daily basis. And this, of course, explains why Jesus warns his church about its condition. He points them that it would be better if they were either hot or cold. If the church becomes cold, it it can see the gospel as refreshing spring that the water in the Colossae had. If the church becomes hot, it would see the gospel as medicinal value like the springs of Herapolis to the north. But to remain lukewarm is a metaphor for continuing to compromise. Guys, I always struggled with this passage when I first read this passage. Because I was like, it doesn't make sense. Because the way I understood the idea of cold or hot meant if I'm hot, I'm on fire for Jesus. Yay! But if I'm cold, it meant like I was the opposite. Isn't that bad? Right? But what the geography of this is showing us, what it's teaching us, is that it's not about being bad or good. It's about being useful, making a difference, having a purpose. The hot water had a purpose of medicinal value. It, he- it healed. And the cold water was refreshing and drinking. Guys, what the gospel does is it heals and it refreshes. But if you're lukewarm, if you just or blood, you cave in, if you, if you look like just everybody else, if you, if you have no difference, no purpose, then you're something that's, un, something that's worthy of being vomited out of your mouth. Have you guys ever had a Coke or a Coke Zero? I use Coke Zero. This is the best illustration for me. That's been sitting in your cup holder for a while, and you're not quite sure how long it's been sitting there. You know what I'm saying? You have a Sushioki cup, and you have filled up with Coke Zero from you don't know when and it's sitting in your cup holder, and you're like, hmm, has that been today? 
yesterday? Three days ago? I don't know how long it's there, but I'm kind of thirsty. And you take a sip and you're like, that's gross. That's me. I've done that. And that's what this is saying because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the word for spit you out of my mouth literally is much more violent. It's, it's much more extreme. It's literally it's the word for vomit. It's to upchuck. It's to throw up. It's to hurl. Let's try to think of other ones, but there's the only ones I came up with. You like upchuck, by the way? I, I enjoyed that one. The complacency toward the things of God and interest shown in the things of the world has rendered this, you're, you're purposeless, you're bitter, you make a bad taste in God's mouth. And so unless the church repents, it's literally saying God wants to vomit them. It's disgusting. Guys, what God is saying to you is this, is that be purposeful. If you're a church that looks just like the world, if you're a Christian who looks just like the world, if you're to the place where all the pagans and the heathens are like, man, you're normal just like us, then guys, you serve no purpose. That's a harsh word, isn't it? But it's a word that needs to be said. Because guys, can I tell you the last thing I want for you guys, for me, is to be such a bad taste like Coke Zero left in my cup holder for days. Is to be something that God wants to vomit out. I don't want us to be self-deceived to think our wealth or our status in this world is anything of value. It says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. From this description of their true condition, it's clear that because of their success in terms of wealth and prosperity, the church thinks it has no needs. Its members have equated material blessing with God's favor. Look at us. Look how good our building looks. Look how awesome our programs are doing. Look how much money we have in our bank account. We're good. We're set. God must be happy with this. John Stott says, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to our century church than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-dipped religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. I'm gonna leave that up. We put that back up for a second. I wanna let that sink in for a little bit. This accusation by our Lord about thinking of themselves as rich with realities that they are poor is based on some very loud echoes from the Old Testament. Especially passages where Israel had come to believe that their nation's economic prosperity was supposedly evidence of their healthy spiritual condition. There are a number of instances in the Old Testament where the Jews assume that, oh, because they're prospering right now, that the nation has been faithful to the covenant. Even though material prosperity was never directly equated to this. Jesus now instructs this church how to rectify their situation. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Being wretched, pitiful, poor, naked, the remedy which Christ prescribes is for this church must come as a shock to them. They must come to their senses and give up trusting in their own wealth, their own name, their own status, their own prosperity. And they say, look to Jesus. This message is depicted, if you guys remember, in the prophet Isaiah 55, where the prophet says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Guys, here's the difference. I love this passage in Isaiah where it says, all who are hungry, all who are thirsty. I saw one of see that song. All who are hungry. Uh, okay. um, 
It's this beautiful thirst and need that's expressed and says you have milk and you have meat and you have food. Abundantly, it's there. But here's the thing. You need to be hungry and thirsty. And this rebuke by John to his church, he's saying, guys, guys, don't miss it. Here's my rebuke. You're walking towards the cliff. You think you got it all figured out. You think you have money. You think you have prosperity. You think life is good. Life is comfortable. So you're walking a, dead, a deadly journey. You're on a terrible path. He's saying, wake up. You need to be hungry and thirsty. Because what you're sating yourself with, what's making you feel full is that, oh, I got a good job, I'm living the American dream, I got a fence, I got a dog, and life is good, I got two and a half kids, everything is great, I'm doing it right, yay for me, I got a degree from this school, and I got a job at this place. Can I tell you that those are poor substitutes to the meat that comes from a relationship with Jesus. And here's what happens. We fill ourselves. We think, oh, we're empty, we're needy, we're thirsty. But then we're like, oh, okay, but I'm full because, okay, at least I got the job. Or I'm full because at least I got that. But you're just eating appetizers that won't satisfy. And this rebuke is to you. This rebuke is to church. And you see, this rebuke is to me. It's saying, guys, guys, the secret to this, the secret to understanding this is know that that's what you're eating. Know that you're hungry. Know that you're thirsty because he satisfies Quit wasting your time filling up on mud pies. Quit wasting your time trying to fill up on sand. Guys, um, I was in this African country one time and I was walking carrying water bottles with these people with me who lived locally in the village. And I looked over and I saw some kids like digging and looked like they're eating like, like cement almost, like, 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 like paste, like clay. And I was like, what are these kids doing? Why are they, what, what are they doing? And then the local villager looked at me and he said, they're eating that because they think it'll fill their stomach. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like, it's like clay almost. It's like mud. It's like paste. He said, yeah, but at least they're eating something that tricks their stomach to feeling full. I just was like, what? That just wrecked my heart. But guys, that's what we're doing. Right? Even the good things of life, even the good things God's given you, you're like, oh, man, that beautiful wife and that incredible husband, those wonderful kids, oh, well, maybe they'll make me feel full and satisfied. But can I tell you something? That you, by yourself, you lack, if you're without Christ in the gospel, if you, if you don't know that you're known and you're loved and you call purpose, guys, that, that no amount of children and job satisfaction and worldly money will ever be enough to fulfill you. But once you're fulfilled, once you've tasted and seen, then you can love your wife, love your husband, love your children the way they're called and need to be loved. Do you hear this rebuke? In Christ, fullness of all riches of God exists, and this treasure is freely offered to us. But be hungry, be thirsty. Paul says in Romans, it's God's kindness which leads sinners to repentance. And since Jesus loves his people, he rebukes them and he disciplines them. And he says to this disobedient, apathetic church, he says, be earnest and repent. These are words of love. And that's, you can see this in the next verse where it says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I'll eat with them. And he is with me. It's truly an act of grace for Jesus to invite the members of this church to renew their fellowship with him and to enjoy it. 
Now, guys, this verse actually is kind of frequently misquoted. It's, 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 it's used typically as evangelistic, in the evangelistic context. Jesus stands out at the door at the human heart waiting for a person, and they open the door to his heart to him, and it's all except Christ is their Savior. But the fact of the matter is that this letter is written to Christians in the church of Laodicea who need to be reminded that the relationship with Christ must be renewed. And so for us now even, the ones who are being full of all this other stuff, he's saying to you, he's saying, this is a word of rebuke. Will you repent? I'm at the door. I love you. Will you let me in? Dr. Kistemacher, one of my professors at RTS actually in Orlando, said this. In fact, those, these verses echoes an ancient canticle or a song of a bridegroom who stands outside the door of the bedchamber, knocking, waiting for his wife to admit him in. Likewise, Christ is asking this church to invite him in so that his relationship with this church might be renewed in all of its fullness. Indeed, having accepted Christ's gracious invitation, Christ will dine with his people, which is most likely a reference to the fellowship of the Savior with his people expressed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The promise is that when you let him in, he's not going to wreck shop. He's not going to throw a fit. He's not going to turn the house upside down. What's he going to do? He says he's going to come in. He's going to eat together with you. We'll put our feet underneath the same table. We're going to be in fellowship again. Once a month, we come to the communion table with this same promise that Jesus offers to the church of Laodicea. He meets with us. He's intimate with us. We are actually typically on a normal schedule would have communion today. This is the first Sunday of the month, but we decided um, this month to have communion next week so that those who have been able to attend in-person service with us, those who are watching, can come next week to our outside service and receive communion together as a family again. And so this is an invitation for those of you who have been watching online. You can come next week. We'll be outside. We'll have communion together next week. And it's this case in all these letters to those who repent, who heed Christ's warnings and continue to hold fast to which they've been revealed in the gospel, Jesus promises them that they will overcome. He says, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Those of us who truly see our need, I truly see our need of Jesus and understand him as the lamb who is glorified. If we hold fast to his treasures, he gives us, and that's to the treasures of this world. Jesus will grant to them the right to rule in his kingdom. A kingdom which dawned at his coming, continues to conquer unbelief despite the opposition, and a kingdom which will be fully realized at the end of the day when Jesus returns to judge the world and make all things new. My people got... I just wanted to stop for a second. I just had to say this because this is emotional for me. I have an honest confession to make. Right before worship started, right, I looked over at my wife. And um, I heard Eric get up to do his introduction, do his welcome. And at that point, we had, what, 12 people (laughs) in the worship service? Something like that. Maybe not that extreme. And I looked over at Gina and I said, why do we only have 12 people in here? Right? I'm just confessing my heart because in my heart I'm like, I still can't help myself. I get to this point where I'm like, is, 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 I still look at it it's like there's still, the number of people still determines somewhat the success for me in my mind. And this is just me being honest, me just being vulnerable with you guys. You know, and I'm still like correlate. I can't help it. This way I've been raised, the way I've been trained, the way my mind works in my humanness, in my sinfulness. I'm like, oh. And then my wife just looks at me and goes, does, does it matter? My wife is a million times wiser than I am. I don't, I don't, I just, 
You guys know this. You guys, it's not even a surprise. I don't even know why I even say it. And it takes, it takes reminders, guys, from my heart. Because even in the midst of this, I still think, oh, where's everybody? And my heart kind of breaks. And then I think, what am I doing wrong? And what's... We don't judge a church by its size, its property, its building, its wealth, or its numbers. It must be measured by its faithfulness to the gospel, its youthfulness to the kingdom. While the world sees success in all these other things, these other things could also lead to complacency and compromise. It's a false success that leads to a lukewarm condition. What Christ asks of his people is that we seek not success, but we seek to be faithful to the gospel that he's entrusted to us. God doesn't call us to grow fruit. He does that. I want you to know something. When the illustration of God as a gardener, he grows the fruit. Only does fruit grow because God is the one who grows the fruit. We are just called to be faithful. Faithful in planting, faithful in growing. Or faithful in planting, faithful in tending. But God is the only one that does the miraculous work of growing fruit. And although all good things come from our Father's hand, and God may indeed choose to bless us in many different ways, with great prosperity or not, let's never assume that any type of prosperity is because we're so spiritually awesome. May we instead be measured by the things that we've seen through these seven letters. And these are the things we've seen, whether or not a church preaches the gospel is how we should be measured. Whether or not a church drives out false teachers and false teaching whether or not church loves each other and the brethren, whether or not church forsakes its first love, whether or not church acknowledges someone other than Christ as Lord, even if it costs their lives. This is what Christ expects of us as we walk in, as he walks in our midst, as we're called to be faithful witnesses of the gospel to the world around us. And if we do all these things, as we hold true to seeing our living hope and our risen Savior, we will overcome. And we will receive all the glorious promises Christ has given to us. Waypoint Church, these letters are given to a string of seven churches, but taken as a whole, it's given to all of us. And taken as a whole, that's why the number seven is there. It's meant to be read as a whole. And as a whole, what God's calling us to do is to focus our attention, our affection, our desire, our gaze, our hunger, our thirst on a living Savior that satisfies all that we have. And as we do so, as we stay true and faithful, he will advance his kingdom. God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we, God, we admit and confess, God, that we become lukewarm in many ways because, God, sometimes it's easier. God, we admit and repent and we confess, God, that sometimes we look at the wrong markers of what makes us successful in life and as a church. God, we repent and confess and sometimes we fill ourselves with everything else of, of this world and even of the good things of this world, but other than fill ourselves with you and the bread that sustains and with, with gold that's refined. And so, God, we choose to turn away from those things, God. We ask you to, to, to move in our heart, spirit, to, to transform us, to say that instead, let us be hungry for you, Jesus, for the things of you, God. May we as a church be known as a church who choose to fall in love with our first love, to be doctrinally true, to be gospel-centered, to be useful for your kingdom, 
to speak truth in this world. May we be known the way we love each other and love the community around us. And we hold fast to you as you hold fast to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.